This is Pet Life Radio. Let's talk pets. And welcome, welcome, welcome to both Instagram and Pet Life Radio. You're here live with Dr. Jeff Werber. We host for the next 30 minutes here on Pet Life Radio's Ask the Vets. Dr. Jeff, here for you, here for your pets. Answer questions you may have. If I can't answer them, I will find an answer and get back to you. Anyway, just uh, the best way to get a hold of me is, well, if you're here on Pet Life Radio, just click on that link left for you by producer Mark. Uh, if you're on Instagram, well, you're already here. Just type away, ask questions, and we can go from there. And also, you can call me on a toll-free number, 877-385-8882. Once again, 877-385-8882. Hope you're having a good weekend so far. Um, here in LA, overcast. Seems like we start overcast a lot. But um, anyway, hopefully it's going to burn off yesterday. Turned out to be a great day. Friday was a great day, so I'm hoping it's going to be another great day. So anyway, I'm uh, back from New York, back my whirlwind trip last week. Two trips to New York, once on Tuesday for literally a day. I wasn't even in New York for more than 20 hours. And then back on Friday, at least made a weekend out of it, which was very nice in the city. And a second wedding. Two brothers, each had daughters, getting married five days apart. Planning the best? I'm not so sure. But anyway, here we go. So uh, let's go to get some questions If while you're waiting here. On, well, first on Pet Life Radio, ask away. You can type in your questions as well. You don't have to actually join us live. I prefer live because, as we say, if a picture is worth a thousand words, and you heard me say this, a video is a hundred thousand words. I can tell so much by looking at the pet. Anyway, let us go. I had a couple of questions here. I want to get, it says, this is from Pet Stylist Fanny. My poodle was diagnosed with a probable portal vein hypoplasia. Is this a liver shunt? Well, it may be shunting blood because of the portal vein hypoplasia. That means the portal vein is either not doing its job well enough. So there may be a backflow, but it's not really the same as a shunt because with you have a shunt, you actually are trying to tie off the vessel that is basically taking the dirty blood before it was filtered and putting it into circulation to go to the heart, through the lungs, and then back to the, into general circulation. So that's the liver shunts. And there's external and intrahepatic shunts. And those externals, depending on the degree, depending on the dog, that can be surgically corrected. Intrahepatic, it's just a matter of diet and using some medications that will, will sort of help minimize the flow and the bad blood from getting through and uh, uh, it's almost like an external filter, if you will. But if this is a hypoplasia, um, I'm not so sure if a dye study was done, an angiogram was done, an MRI, how they came up with the diagnosis, or was it just based on clinical signs and liver values? I'd like some more information. I could talk to one of my internist friends to find out more about it. I definitely have had dogs with liver shunts where some of the free filtered blood is mixing with the post-filtered blood, and that's a problem. And those are, as I said, surgically or medical treatment, depending on where the shunts are. But I'm not familiar with this portal vein hypoplasia, so I'll do some uh, homework and we'll, we'll get back to you. Reach out to me during the week personally, and I'll see what I can find out. I'm working with a young Chihuahua foster. He's got a gnarly case of stranger danger, and he's trying to just get him ready for some meet and guests with potential adopters. Okay. So first thing, it's not uncommon. And chihuahuas in general have that uh, complex and they get super, super tough, maybe because they're small stature. 
And uh, we call them land sharks for good reason, because chihuahuas are known to be very, very aggressive, uh, many of them, and want to bite. When I see a really, really cute, nice chihuahua that wants to lick me, I am very pleased and want to see more of those dogs than I do the ones that want to take my fingers off. Um, one of the reasons why we don't hear about the, the chihuahua personality and behavior, uh, like in the media, is because even if they bite, it's kind of small. You know, you know, pit bull bites, you got a problem. A little Rottweiler bites, you got a problem. That's how we hear about them. But we don't hear about the chihuahuas. And even the Cocker Spaniels, and we say the Cockers and Chihuahuas probably bite more people than pit bulls and, and Rottweilers or Chow Chows, but we don't hear about it because it's usually not that serious. So what you need to do is, first of all, hopefully you can find something that this dog finds really, really attractive. Some sort of, we call it, you know, if he's motivated by treats, that's the best thing ever. So what you do is you want to teach your dog, this uh, little Chihuahua Foster, to um, enjoy friends and use the word friend a lot. All right. And so when you're trying to introduce him, then you say, okay, he's uh, here's a friend. Here's a friend. Now you want to, whatever that favorite treat is, you want to stop giving it. The only ones that give this dog this treat are the strangers or the new friends. So what you want to do is have them come in, equip them in advance with these favorite treats and have them come in and you have little, little stranger danger on a, on a, on a leash and have them in a really low, get low. Don't be like standing over them, looming over them, making them feel that they have to defend themselves. Get down low, keep a nice soft voice and offer the treat. First, you toss it at him. You don't, don't give him your finger yet because he might bite it. And you toss the treats. And then what you do is you keep getting closer and closer as you toss the treats. And then, then you can finally have them take the treat out of your hand. Once they get used to this and they're taking the treat out of your hand, and you remember, the strangers are the only ones giving the dog the treat, then he might start trusting them a little bit more. You know, when we adopted our little China rescue, name is Georgie. She was a terror. Nobody can get near her. And she was in the bushes at a friend's house. That's how we got the call to come over and see her. And she was tough. And it's exactly what I did. I asked them if they have any like lunch meats, anything I could give, uh, some hot dog, uh, salami, pastrami, turkey, anything. She got me some sliced turkey or chicken. And I started, again, first tossing it in her direction, getting a little closer and a little closer and a little closer until she would take it from my hand. Then she takes from my hand. I'm petting her under the chin, nice and slow. It's just a matter of building up trust. And then if all these strangers, which turn out to be friends, come over and, and do this, he'll be a lot more comfortable. It is baby steps. You're not going to solve this problem in one meeting. Trust me. It's something that's going to take some time and make sure that nobody is threatening to him. So that's important also. Any threatening behavior, loud voices, eye contact, standing over him, you know, that's not going to work. It's not going to work. It's only going to make it worse. So give it a shot and let me know how, uh, how it works out. All right. Let's see. Anybody for bite training? Ah, bite training a new puppy. Ah, great question also. And um, here, here's the thing. First of all, you have to understand there are certain behaviors that puppies exhibit that we may find objectionable, but they're normal, natural, essential behaviors. All right. What's the most common, right? It's probably going to be bathroom. Well, they're bathroom mistakes. Are they mistakes because they went to the bathroom? Nah, that's pretty natural to me. If they're babies, they'd be wearing diapers. So it's not a mistake. Ah, their choice of location might be able to be improved. But the actual act itself. So think of the old-fashioned way. Any of you who've you know, been around for a long time, what we used to do, right? Roll up a magazine, a newspaper, and 
and hit the ground, hit the door, whatever. Nuts. That's not going to work. That's going to teach him, oh, I can't go to the bathroom. So when you reprimand a dog for bathroom mistakes, right, or chewing mistakes, and it's going to get to that one now also, chewing is a natural, normal, essential behavior that is good for their mental development, of course, good for their oral development. It's a must. They have to chew. That's what they're going to do. Puppies are going to chew, and they might chew on your hand too. So you know, there are a number of different ways. A way that's always worked for me, I learned this from a trainer years and years ago, and that is dogs relate to behaviors that their littermates and their mom would employ. So why not try to do the same thing? What do I mean? So picture this. Puppy A and puppy B are playing. Playing. In play, in play, puppy A bites puppy B a bit too hard. It wasn't an aggressive move. It was just playing. That's what they do. Puppies are going to do it. So what is puppy B's first response going to be? He's going to yell out a yell. All right? And puppy A is going to stop. That's how we learn what's called bite inhibition. How hard can a bite be before it's too much? Now, that often works. At that point, when you give a screech, and he's going to look. If nothing else, it's going to startle the pup. Then always have the right chew toy available. Give him one of his appropriate chew toys and a little treat. I'm a big fan of treat motivation training, especially early on. Small, small pieces. You have to understand one thing. Dogs don't appreciate the size of the treat. They appreciate the act of receiving the treat coupled with, for purposes of operant conditioning later, my good girl, yeah, hugs, hugs, kisses, pet, you know, whatever, along with the treat. Because the more you do that, pretty soon you won't need the treat anymore. They're going to get that same level of satisfaction from being praised. So the whole idea is get their attention, distract them, and redirect them to the appropriate object, in this case, a chew toy, but always coupled with positive reward, positive reinforcement when they take the toy. Now, let's say that doesn't work. All right. Now let's take the same scenario. Puppy A is playing with mom and in play bites mom too hard. Is mom going to yelp? I don't think so. What's mom going to do? She's going to let out a growl. People practice this and only use this if you have to. Use it the first way is fine. Just get their attention, give a scream, a screech, uh, clap your hands, something that stops the behavior only because it's a distraction, then give them the appropriate toy. If you have to growl at them, it's a deep, guttural growl. And I mean, ah, and then you stare them right in the eye. And they don't like that. What I find when I do that with little pups, first of all, I only have to do it once and it lasts forever. That same puppy that still comes in on, on round two after I display this practice, if you will, and mom sees it or dad sees it. And then they come in for round B shots to four hours, four weeks later. Guess what? That dog is licking my face, licking my, he is not biting. So they do learn. It's always a joke because he's, <laughs> he bites me all the time. I'm not biting you. He learned that you don't bite me. And that's why. So one thing, after you reprimand a puppy, mom's way, not a rolled up newspaper, not a smack in the face. No, that's not going to work. It's usually eye contact. It's a, it's a growl. It's a guttural sound. All right. Then, so what happens is, and you're making eye contact, the puppy starts looking away. You know, they've lost that battle. And then what do they want more than anything? They want love and affection and it's okay. And so it really is setting the boundaries of who's the boss, who is going to listen to whom. Yeah, I find it works really, really well. So that's the whole idea. Now, let's go back to training where I'm on this house training for the same topic. That is, if you do it the old fashioned way, and you yell at them. Are they being yelled at? Look at it from the puppy's perspective. Is he or she being yelled at because of the act of going to the bathroom? Or 
because of just the location. Well, he's thinking, uh-oh, I can't go to the bathroom. So now you learn, you talk to me, right? And you take him out. And I say, go out with him. You got to train him to do his business outside, give him tons of positive reward. Then you come back in the house, let him play with you. Otherwise, he goes back to the house. You want to create him or confine, et cetera, et cetera. Well, what I find is if you've yelled at him and now you're walking with him, then you just, he's not doing anything. It's been 20 minutes. He usually can't hold it in for more than five. It's 20 minutes, a half hour, right? You bring him back in the house. You're, you're, you're not mad. You're frustrated as hell, but you're not mad. Put him back in his crate, okay? And what does he do right in his crate? You walk away, peas or poops. Just you out for half hour. What is this? Can you imagine from the dog's perspective, you're walking him, you just yelled at him for his poor choice of location, right? That was a bad decision on his point. Yeah, he's learning. And now you expect him to go while you're there. He, can you imagine if he could talk? You're saying, go, come on, bouncer, go, go, go. He's looking at you, go, what are you, nuts? Yeah, he yelled at me last time I went. You think I'm going to go right in front of you? So that's why you never want to associate it with a negative. It's just a matter of redirection and always positively, and uh, you'll win this battle. Might take a while, but you win it. Anyway, time to take a quick break here on Pet Life Radio and Instagram. Stay tuned on Instagram. We can talk during the break. I will move myself, so I'll be back after these short words. See you in a minute. Take a bite out of your competition. Advertise your business with an ad in Pet Life Radio podcasts and radio shows. There is no other pet-related media that is as large and reaches more pet parents and pet lovers than Pet Life Radio. With over 7 million monthly listeners, Pet Life Radio podcasts are available on all major podcast platforms. And our live radio stream goes out to over 250 million subscribers on iHeartRadio, Odyssey, TuneIn, and other streaming apps. For more information on how you can advertise on the number one pet podcast and radio network, visit PetLifeRadio.com slash advertise today. Let's talk pets. Let's talk pets. On Pet Life Radio. Pet Life Radio. And welcome. You're back here live with Dr. Jeff here on Pet Life Radio. During the break, I was answering some questions here on Instagram Live. And one came in. We were talking about a 10-year-old boxer that had warts and that I, I don't like to necessarily anesthetize a dog just for warts unless they're bleeding all over the place, unless it's, it's really big. I prefer to either, if they're very small, we can do cryosurgery, bore them, freeze them off but it does take some uh, number of treatments, cryosurgery. Then there's also cauterizing and burning them off. Again, just like a dermatologist would do or surgical incision. And if I'm going to do surgical excision, I like to do it with already another procedure. So I kind of wait until the next dentistry is due, et cetera. Then the question came, well, what about in general, knocking out a 10-year-old dog to remove any kind of mass? So my answer is this, age is not a disease. Uh, age is something we deal with, we have to work with, we have to consider but I'm not going to make the decision to do or not to do just based on age. I want to know what condition this animal is in. I want to do a blood test, urinalysis, listen to the heart, maybe chest x-rays. Do we have a healthy patient? Case in point, my darn near 15-year-old Labrador had a mast cell tumor. It was growing very fast. It started to rupture, bleeding all over the place, and he was getting near 15, which for, by the way, a Labrador is really, really amazing. So took a blood test. I said, look, what can we expect if we do nothing? We're going to expect this thing is so bad, we're going to probably have to put him to sleep within a week, all right? Now, if I anesthetize him to try to remove it, he may not survive the surgery. I get it, but at least we tried. So I'd rather try and fail 
than not try at all and still fail. So it was a, let's go for it. So his bloods came back perfectly. On the day of his actual 15th birthday, I took him into surgery. A very long procedure, very messy, very bloody as I knew it would be. And I was able to get probably 90, 85, 90% of the tumor. It was it already invaded the body wall. It was no way I could get it all without some major, major trauma and not being able to close the wound. I didn't want to mess with getting into the body wall. So put drains in, he survived the surgery. He healed pretty darn well. As soon as I took the drains out and the stitches out, I started him on a medication called Palladia, which is great for mast cell tumors. It was a grade three. I mean, it was, it was bad. P.S. Within two months of the Palladia, you couldn't even feel the tumor at all. It was unbelievable. And he went for a year and a half. And I finally put him down at 16 and a half, not because of the tumor per se, just because he was 16 and a half and other parts of him starting to fail, maybe relating to the mast cell. I don't know. But now, in hindsight, was my decision a good one? You bet you it was. I got a year and a half on a dog that usually when it doesn't even live to 15, let alone 16 and a half. So to me, age is a consideration, but it's not a disease. So if everything was good with this boxer, do I have any hesitation doing teeth, doing the masses? Absolutely not. Now, we'd be very cautious. They're on monitoring equipment. You know, most surgical complications are related to the anesthesia, not the procedure. So anyway, keep that in mind. And yes, definitely, definitely would do it. What tests we, as I said, you're going to looking at do you know, basic blood and urine. And of course, x-rays, chest x-rays. I have many, many cases. Here's a case in point that have known cardiac disease. Send them to my good friend, Dr. Carly Salinger, who's a board-certified cardiologist in town. She comes to our office and does ultrasounds, echocardiograms for the heart, and makes recommendations. We, we treat them based on those recommendations. And she always has a paragraph in her write-up about surgicals, anesthesia complications, et cetera. And oftentimes, we know what we're dealing with. We make There are certain induction agents that are very safe for the heart, and we go ahead and do so. what we need to do. So I, uh, I highly recommend it difference between x-rays and ultrasound, what does each show? Good question also. So the uh, x-rays are basically a shadow, all right? It's two-dimensional of a three-dimensional object, and you can see certain densities. You can see air density, which is very dark. You can see uh, very, very hard products like bone or metal come up as white, and bone obviously then comes up as white, and, um, and anything in between. So food, you can see food often ingested in the intestines. Uh, you can see gas in the intestines. You can look at the kidneys. You can see a mass. Sometimes you don't see the mass, but you see what's called displacement of the other organs. So if all the intestines are pushed all the way to the back or all the way to the top, then you know you have something in there. Unfortunately, little to no fat makes it very difficult to see edges of tissue and organs and fluid. So if there's bleeding or something and you see just no detail, that is an indication that now you have to go to your ultrasound. Ultrasound, it gives you information, but it's much more localized. So you can't do an ultrasound, one look uh, shot like you can x-ray and look at the entire abdomen. So for example, when we're the best example I can give you is if you have a pregnant female and you want to see how many pups you'd have a tough time doing with ultrasound because it's so hard to see the differentiation from one side to the other where you're picking it up, right? But you can test the viability of each pup. You can see the heart. You can see blood flowing. I mean, it's amazing. Now, on an x-ray, you can actually do a head count and you can look at the positions. So I usually do both. If I want to know how many pups in there, I'm going to do an x-ray. 
But if I want to know the viability and are they alive, then I'm going to do an ultrasound. And so you really sometimes need to do both. And uh, depending on what you're looking for, you know, if I'm looking at a bone, I want to look at uh, arthritis, I'm not going to get a lot from ultrasound. I'm going to get a lot from x-ray and even more so if needed from a CT or an MRI if, if we have to go to that route. So anyway, I hope that answers your question. During the summer, a lot of pet travel. So I want to just some, some warnings. Number one, make sure that the lodging allows for pets because you'd be surprised that you might go somewhere and they say, we're pet friendly. Oh, your dog is over 50 pounds. Uh, no, I'm sorry. We don't. Now you tell me you couldn't have told me. So ask the questions. All right. Number two, bring full supply of food and meds. That's very important. Number three, bring, of course, food and water, bowls, leash, collar. Make sure you have ID, preferably microchip, a picture of your dog in case your dog should, should somehow get away. Um, um, anti-anxiety, if you're doing car travel, anti-nausea, if you're doing car travel. Uh, also, of course, never leave your pet alone in a car. One trick I've learned that's really cool. If you're doing a long road trip, start with like a big five-gallon jug of water. Use it in the car. When you get to your first rest stop, refill it with the local water. Don't empty. So now every stop you're doing, you're slowly adding different water supply waters into your home water, which of course your dog is accustomed to. So the whole idea is you're gradually training the dog and having them exposed to local water supplies, which are a little different. So uh, anyway, keep that in mind. Some questions came in. That dog's oh, weight is correct. Well, for one thing I do is first of all, looking. Your dog should have, except for sight hounds, all right, which is the Saluki and the Borzoi and the Crayhounds, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, you want to be able to feel the ribs, but not necessarily see them. As I say, some of these are side hands, you're going to see them too. But you, you definitely want to be able to feel them. If you can pinch more than an inch and you pat your dog and you can't feel them, chance are the dog's a little heavy. Another thing you can do is look down on your dog from above. And you should see like an hourglass as you, you know, you start here in the chest, as you go towards the waist, it should come in a little bit until the hips. If you have a rectangle, if your dog's a rectangle, I joke, looks like more like a coffee table, then too heavy. Also, looking the dog from the side, okay, so the chest is you know, from the back to the chest is like this. As you go backward, you know, the backbone's going to be the same, but you, as you get down to the private, to the groin, it should go up again. And so you start here, and as you go back down, it comes like that. So from the, uh, the side view, you should be able to see that. If you don't, if it's also a box, then chances are your pet's too heavy. So if there's any question, talk to your veterinarian, but those are some, will give you some uh, ideas of what's going on. All right. Um, uh, yes, always have a collar when you're traveling. I agree, but also microchip too. All right. Most common thing you treat lately. Oh boy. Um, right now, this type varies. I say that the more common things are skin related, especially ears, a lot of ear infections, a lot of dermatitis. This time of year between atopy, which is atopic dermatitis, which is inhaled allergens, flea allergy, FAD. Food allergies, people put a, blame a lot on food. They say only about 10 to 15% of, of allergies are food-related, but still. Then, of course, people are out and about. I see orthopedic injuries. I see limping. So you know, that's a biggie. Uh, vomiting and diarrhea, that's a biggie. You know, Animals getting into things, eating things, et cetera. So there are, are a lot of things that we see. But I guess those are the biggies. And how do I know if a bump is a wart or a growth? Well, warts look like cauliflower. They're literally on top of the skin. Okay, now there are cysts, which are kind of below the skin. You can feel them. There are other skin tags on top of the skin. Uh, you can have, uh, you know, if, uh, we said warts on top of the skin. Just moles can be on top of the skin. Anything that's below the skin, where the surface of the skin looks totally normal, but you feel it below, then you're thinking of things like sebaceous cysts, 
lipomas, other masses, et cetera. And even some like mast cells can start to be both a little bit on top, on top of the skin. And then also you feel it below any growth or bump or lump, see a veterinarian just to be sure a diagnosis can be made. And then that's the best way to do it. Uh, okay. Why do we still need to give dogs rabies shot? When was the last? Well, good question. The reason why we have to give rabies and then after this, we have to go is that rabies is a zoonotic disease. That means it's a disease that can affect people. And therefore, there are laws regarding rabies where there are no laws against distemper and parvo, which we see a lot more of. So I think that it's important by law. In order to not give a rabies, you have to then prove the animal is never going outside, can't, you know, can't get up, it's totally infirm, it's weak, uh, like on its last leg, you might be able to get by without giving rabies shot with a letter from your veterinarian. Some places, and I don't know what states, if you want to spend the money, you can get a non-export rabies titer from the Veterinary Diagnostic Laboratory at Kansas State University, and it will give you a, a titer value to indicate whether or not your dog is still protected against rabies. And uh, that might help if you choose not to give the shot. But you know, why senior dogs? Do you still need to do shots? Is the alternative? Well, yes, titers. If you have any doubt about a disease, titers. I know there is a colleague of mine Dr. Jean Dodd, she's based here in LA. She's a big doctor when it comes to vaccines. She's a big fan of titers. That's why I recommend titers for distemper and parvo. Some of the vaccines or the diseases you can't titer test. So it may or may not be good, but there are some that you can. And if you really don't want to give a vaccine, but you want to make sure your pet is protected, get a titer test. I mean, that's what I did with COVID. I didn't want to get another COVID vaccine. I went and got a titer test and uh, my immunity is off the charts high. So I'm not worried. And I, you know, except for the very first time I had in October of 20, though I've been exposed to it many, many, many times, I have not gotten it. And that's probably why I have a very, very, very high titer. So I have a good immune system and dogs do too. So you may not need to um, get the vaccine if you can prove titers. What I wouldn't do is assume that you probably don't need the shot because my dog is 10. She's been around indoor, outdoor. If anything he's been exposed to, he's probably been exposed to already. I'd be cautious. Now, I did ask. Dr. Dodds, this question about a cat. It was an outdoor cat, indoor, outdoor. Cat was like 11 years old, did vaccines. And I asked her, what would you do? And her answer was simple. She goes, if this cat has been outside, exposed to leukemia, exposed to feline AIDS, right? FIV, exposed to potential rabies, and is still with you, chances are it doesn't need a vaccine. So again, but you know, it is a crapshoot. She's probably right. And we didn't give the vaccine. The owner didn't want to vaccinate. And most likely that cat has its own protection already, some just by being exposed to the outdoors. So it really depends. You know, the recommendations are for core diseases that we see in our area. Keep the vaccines current. Note, however, that's why I'm a big advocate of the titers. Years ago, can anyone remember? Distemper parvo shot was good for a year. Now it's three years. And there was a, a phase in there that was for two, I think. But the question is, did the vaccine change at all? Or did our knowledge of the immune system and how long dogs maintain their immunity change? And that's what happened. So when I titered, I have dogs I've titered now for six and seven years, still don't need a vaccine. So every dog is different. There's no one rule that's good for all dogs. And uh, with that, we're going to leave you. And uh, if you have any questions during the week, please you know, let me know. And uh, you can reach me either at Dr. Jeff at PetLifeRadio.com. And uh, join other, you know, Pet Life Radio is loaded with great shows. So you definitely want to uh, stay tuned, log on. Uh, a number of the shows are hosted by veterinarians. So you'll learn a lot. 
and really, really good trainers as well. So a lot of information. And then uh, here on uh, Instagram, of course, you can leave, on the internet, you get almost anything. I can't promise it's all good, but you, uh, you can get lots of good things as well as maybe things that aren't so good. Have a great week, everybody. Uh, we'll be here uh, next week, same bad time, same bad channel, here on Pet Life Radio, here on Instagram. And during the week, as I said, if you need to get a hold of me, drjeffpetliferadio.com or Instagram or drjeff.com. And uh, we will uh, see you next week. Have a great week. Bye-bye. Let's Talk Pets, every week on demand, only on PetLifeRadio.com.